Father in heaven, I thank you for your holy Sabbath. Lord, I thank you for your word and the testimony of apostles and prophets. Lord, I pray you would give us ears to hear today and hearts to respond to what it is you want to teach us. May we be drawn closer to you through this experience that we may more clearly reflect the image of Jesus to those around us, that nothing may be between our heart and you. We ask and pray these things in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we were there last week as well. Just want to revisit and get the framework for this last message in this particular series. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 1, the Apostle Paul tells us here, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ, but with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, I'm going to pause there. This is really the force of this passage, and I I, I have to even admit for myself, I don't know that this passage hits me with the impact that it should. You understand what he's telling us here? He's telling us that he's not talking about heathen nations. He's talking about a whole mass of people who claim to believe in the God of heaven, The Bible numbers those who came out of Egypt at 600,000 men. The Bible didn't number the women and the children. I've always figured a woman for every man and a child for every man and woman, and you've got nearly 2 million, but some commentators say you're pushing near 4 or 5 million. And what the apostle, the inspired apostle, just told you and me is that out of all of those who came out of Egypt, with most of them... The Lord was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And if you read through the record, there are two that made it in. Now, that doesn't mean that there were two who were faithful. There were people who died on the way and what have you. But still, the contrast is alarming. We'll go with my two million number. Two out of two million. Well, I counted the men. The two that went in were men. Let's just call it 12. Let's say 20. 20 out of two million. So the point that the apostle starts out with is he's sharing this with us and he's saying, I don't want us to follow the same example. If the devil was trying so hard to keep them out of the earthly Canaan, how much harder is he working to keep us out of the heavenly Canaan? And that should should really grab our attention right from the beginning to say, what was it that led to that? What were the things that ensnared them so I don't follow the same example? Example, and that's what he goes on to tell us here. He says in verse 6, Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed by serpents, nor complain, as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now notice especially verse 11 and onward here. Now all these things happened to them as what? Examples, and they were written for 
our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands, what? Take heed lest he fall. Don't think just because you're in church today that that guarantees that the devil can't get one in on you. And so he tells us now, I think in a broad sense, that the history of God's people has lessons for us. And the challenge for us today is that we are 3,500 years removed from these lessons. Israel, they came out of Egypt 3,500 years ago. And so what we've been trying to do in this series is look at some of these stories. Paul cites five examples. And I don't think he's limiting our, our instruction to those five examples, but that's what we've been looking at. We're looking at the fifth of them today. But it's, it's our responsibility upon whom the ends of the earth have come to look at those stories, get an understanding of what's happening, and then apply it to our day. Because I said there's 3,500 years in between. What I think is really interesting is how we're not very different from the Israelites, even given 3,500 years. Sin is still sin, the sinful nature is still the sinful nature, and and what's even more amazing is the devil still uses the same tricks and has been pretty successful. So what we're looking at today, the story, the only story we haven't looked at is, is, and, and Paul doesn't put them in order here, we haven't gone in... Uh, through these stories in this order, but he talks in verse 8 about not committing sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. The story is the apostasy of the Israelites at Baal Peor. Now, Baal Peor was right at the border of Canaan, and so they they have come to the point where they have almost finished their 40 years of wandering. And in fact, in in the scripture, it refers to it in some passages as acacia grove. The acacia tree is similar to the palm tree. It was a very tropical setting, a very beautiful setting. Um, A nice, a nice setting, but the, 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 you know, the, those kind of settings where everything is nice kind of uh, gives way to ease and relaxation can also lead to trouble. And that's what we find in the story here. They're right here on the border. It's right before they crossed over into the promised land. And don't think that the devil was saying, well, you know what? They're already practically there. I may as well just leave them alone. And he doesn't say that to us today either, where we're standing on the borders of the heavenly Canaan. So I want you to turn with me to uh, Numbers 25. Now, incidentally... For the scripture reading, I I like to pick a passage, a New Testament passage that I think exemplifies the principle. And in our scripture reading, it talked about where Paul warns about a little leaven. He says a little leaven leavens a whole lump. How many of you baked bread here? I'm not talking about the bread machine. That's the easy way. I used to bake some good good bread back in the day. It's been a long time, actually, since I've done the, 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 the bread baking and the kneading and all of that. But one thing I learned from that process is it only takes a little bit of yeast to make the bread rise. And that little bit of yeast works its way all through. Now, that's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about leaven. He's, he's, he's talking about those something that, that makes its way in and can spread through the whole mass. And we're going to see the application of that in our story today. You know, the Bible uses leaven to refer to both sin and righteousness. It talks about the leaven of godliness, and it also talks about 
uh, the leaven of sin and corruption. And that's, of course, what Paul warns against in Galatians there. Now, we're going to Numbers 25, starting in verse 1. Last week, we had a, a long passage that encompassed what we were looking at, but today is a passage of about nine verses that we're going to look at in the story itself. Numbers 25, and we're starting there in verse 1. This is what the Bible tells us. Now, Israel remained in Acacia Grove. And the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. Some of your translations will say sexual immorality. They, the women of Moab, invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. And I'm going to pause there. The name Baal is a, is a, is a, it's a word that means Lord. And so the gods of the different various nations often had Baal this or Baal that. Um, for example, I don't know if it was here. I spoke recently somewhere and we talked about Baal-zebub, the Bible speaks of, who's the Lord of the flies, literally. Um, Baal-peor is the Lord of the gap. Baal, there are other... So anyway, this was a god of the Moabites, and I just want you to notice, we're going to flesh this out in a minute, that we're going to have to piece some things together, but it says that uh, the, the Israelites began to commit sexual immorality with the women of Moab, but notice that this resulted in them worshiping their gods. And something that you'll need to know here is that a lot of these idolatrous nations include, included sexual acts within their worship. And this harlotry it's talking about with the women of Moab was drawing them into the heathen worship. We'll talk about that a little bit further as we go. But it goes on to say there in verse 3, it says, So Israel was joined to Baal Peor. So, so the apostasy became national. It doesn't say a few people in Israel. Israel became joined to Baal Peor. Verse 4 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Every one of you kill his men who were joined to Baal of Peor. And indeed, one of the children of Israel came and presented his brethren to his brethren, a Midianite woman, in the sight of Moses, and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Now, I want to interject this as well. Two things here. I mentioned this last week. I don't know if I gave you a reading assignment last week. You would do well to go to the book Patriarchs and Prophets and read the chapter called Apostasy at the Jordan. You'll notice even in these verses, there's got to be some major things happening in between these verses. Right? Because the Lord's giving instruction to kill the offenders, but then they're weeping between the... Well, when did they go to the temple to weep between the porch and the altar? When did this all happen? Okay, so it's, there's, there's more detail that's not filled in here. Moses had been busy planning for the conquest of Jericho. 
And so this was happening. This didn't happen overnight, as we're going to find out shortly. This happened over a period of time, but Moses wasn't up on it because he was so absorbed in getting ready to cross over. And when this apostasy broke out and all of Israel joined in, and it says the Lord's anger was aroused, then the Lord instructs Moses, and Moses instructed the leaders to kill all who were involved. And so this began taking place. People were executed. Their bodies were put out on display. And I wish time permitted for me to get into even that. There are examples in Scripture of judgments of the Lord that cause us some question today. And I think there are good explanations that, we don't, that would take more time than we have right now. But suffice it to say this. The Lord was trying to send a message of how dangerous this experience that they were involved in was by his judgments. And yet in the face of it, so you've got to imagine that there are people who've now been executed, their dead bodies on display, and yet in the midst of it, here comes an Israelite man through the camp with the Midianite woman right in front of Moses... And the congregation who are now, many of them, weeping before the temple because they're convicted of what they've done and they're asking repentance or asking uh, forgiveness from God. In In the face of that, here comes this guy waltzing through with his Midianite girlfriend. And you've got to ask yourself, how far gone does a person have to be mentally to be able to justify themselves in that kind of action? And we saw that a little bit last week with with Korah's rebellion. And so the Bible goes on to tell us in verse 7, Now when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through her body. So you get an idea of what just took place and where they were going in the tent and what they were doing in the tent. And I'll leave it at that even in spite of these judgments of God and what have you. And the Bible says, So the plague was stopped among the children of Israel, and those who died in the plague were 24,000. Now it's interesting, in the passage we read in 1 Corinthians, it says 23,000 died in a day. Most commentators say they believe the discrepancy is that uh, there were more that died, but in one day most of the executions took place. Now you can do research on that or, or what have you. But that's our, that's our story, and, and there's a lot in there. And Paul gives us this as an example. The, per, the thing he draws right out of it is sexual immorality. That's what he says in the, in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians. Let us not commit sexual immorality as they did. But I think there's a lot more in the story, and I think the bigger question in my own mind is, how could God's people have been led into this? And as I said, it didn't happen overnight. I wanted to show you this statement here, just describing what had happened there. Let me back up just a little bit before I do that. Following, or preceding rather, uh, chapter 25, are chapters 22 through 24 that tells the story of Balaam. How many of you ever read the story of Balaam in the Bible? You know the guy whose donkey ended up talking to him? He went out to curse Israel. Balaam had been a prophet of God, but... 
and he'd been faithful. But Balaam was also greedy. And the king of the Moabites offered him money to curse Israel. Now, Balaam figured this way. He figured, well, look, if, if Israel's faithful to God, I can curse them all day long. It's not going to do anything. And so, sure, I'll go curse them. They'll be safe, and I'll get the money. And he went and he tried to curse Israel three times. But every time he went to curse Israel, and I'm giving the short version, he ended up blessing Israel. Amen. He couldn't curse Israel. And, of course, the Midianite king didn't want to give him the, 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 the reward that he was going to. But Balaam had another plan. When he couldn't curse Israel, he knew there was another way to get at Israel by seducing them away from the Lord. See, he knew that Israel was safe as long as they were faithful. We're going to see that again in a moment. And so it's interesting that as you read on in Scripture, when God sends Moses and and, and the armies of Israel to uh, avenge themselves on the Midianites, you find Balaam there. In fact, if you go with me to Numbers 31... I want you to notice what it says, Numbers 31. The Bible says in Numbers 31, verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take vengeance on the Midianites for the children of Israel. Afterward, you shall be gathered to your people. And so they killed the kings of Midian. Verse 8 says, They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of those who were killed, Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian, Balaam, the son of Beor, they also killed with the sword. Wait a minute, what's Balaam doing there, right? But then if you jump ahead to verse 14, notice what it says there. But Moses was angry with the officers of the army, with the captains over thousands and captains over hundreds who had come from the battle. And Moses said to them, have you kept what? All the women alive? Look, these women caused the children of Israel through what? Through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. So here the Bible gives us a little insight that Balaam was behind this concocted scheme. Now we're going to unfold this a little bit as we go. This is the statement we're going to look at. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 454, says, At Balaam's suggestion, a grand festival in honor of their gods was appointed by the king of Moab. And you have to understand that the Moabites and the Midianites, I'll say those, I'll use both of those phrases, they were both, both nations were involved in this thing. It was a nation of Moab, the king of Moab, Balak was the king of Moab, but the women were Midianites. So anyway, a grand festival in honor of their gods was appointed by the king of Moab, and it was secretly arranged that Balaam should induce the Israelites to attend. He was regarded by them what? as a prophet of God, and hence had little difficulty in accomplishing his purpose. Too often we have some leader that we may respect, and without ever questioning why we're doing what we're doing, we say, well, they think it's okay, so it ought to be okay. Not always the case. He was regarded as a prophet of God, and hence had little difficulty in accomplishing his purpose. Great numbers of the people joined him in witnessing the festivities. They ventured upon the forbidden ground and were entangled in the snare of Satan beguiled with music and dancing and allured by the beauty of heathen vestals they cast off their fealty to jehovah as they united in mirth and feasting indulgence in wine beclouded their senses and broke down the barriers of self-control so the israelites were swept away into this uh worship with the heathen nations passion had full sway and after having 
I'm sorry, and having defiled their consciences by lewdness, they were persuaded to bow down to idols. And I want you to notice that there's just a regression here. There's, there's one piece that leads to another, leads to another, one step leads to another. They were persuaded to bow down to idols. They offered sacrifice upon heathen altars and participated in the most degrading rites. Now, as I mentioned, Balaam understood that the strength of God's people was dependent upon their faithfulness to him. Look at Numbers 23. This is a little bit before when Balaam went to curse Israel but end up giving a blessing. This is one of those places. I want you to notice what he says. Numbers 23, 21. Speaking of Israel, Balaam says now, verse 21, he has not, speaking of God, he has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. And that could be a whole sermon right there. We've already read about it. He didn't see wickedness in Israel? Because when you put your trust in Christ, the righteousness of Christ covers you. And the Lord didn't see anything in his people when they were trusting in him. And so Balaam said... He has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. The Lord, his God, is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. And Balaam understood that this was something that the only way he was going to get in at Israel was to break that faithfulness to God. Now notice, go from there with me to the book of Hosea. Right after the book of Daniel in the New Testament, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, right? Right after Daniel, you've got Hosea, and we're going to chapter 9. And I want you to notice something tucked away here about this story we're reading, this incident at Baal Peor. Hosea chapter 9, verse 10. And again, God, through the prophet Hosea, is pointing out the backslidings of his people, hoping they'll return to him, encouraging them to return to faithfulness. Hosea 9, verse 10, he says, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first fruits on the fig tree in its first season. But they went to Baal Peor and what? Separated themselves to that shame. They became an abomination like the thing they love. And so here, the Bible's telling us that the whole goal of the devil was to get them to separate from God, who was their strength and glory. The devil knows if he can separate his people from their faithfulness to God, they're open prey. Notice this statement. In the book, Patriarchs and Prophets, again, most of it is going to be taken from that chapter I recommended. It says, when the people of God are what? Faithful to his commandments, there is no enchantment against Jacob, neither is there any divination against Israel. And that's something else is in Balaam's prophecy. Hence, all the power and wily arts of Satan are exerted to what? Seduce them into sin. Hence, in other words, for this reason, this is why the devil tries to get us to sin. Because he knows if he can break our connection with God, we have no strength. You follow that? Again, their iniquitous practices did that for Israel, which all the enchantments of Balaam could not do. They separated them from God. 
And so that was the devil's goal the whole time. Now, why are we looking at this again? Why are we looking at something in a dusty old 3,500-year-old story? Because the same strategies are used today by the enemy. The same enemies tempts us to sin today to break our connection with God just as he did then because he knows we're going to be open game for his temptations when he does. It's that little bit of leaven that Paul talks about that spreads in through the whole lump. He doesn't do it in a moment. In this example, this story, this this event in the history of Israel with Baal Peor didn't happen overnight, but slowly the devil used what we might call today friendship evangelism. Right? The Midianite women had an objective, and Balaam gave them the objective, look, we've got to separate them from God. Well, how's that going to happen? Well, we've got to get them to worship our idols. Well, they're not just going to up and worship our idols. What are we going to do? Hmm, let's see. Let's go in their camp, and let's befriend them. And let's, you know, once we begin to connect with them, then they're going to say, hey, they're not so bad. And then the more we're connected there, we can start to, uh, uh, in, you know, interject some of our ideas. And then we're going to bring them over to our camp. And we'll have Balaam give an invitation because they trust Balaam. And next thing you know, they'll be over in our camp worshiping with us and doing things they never would have imagined themselves doing. That's what happened at Baal Peor. And it still happens today with every one of us, where the devil finds some inroad. Notice this statement. A long what? Preparatory process unknown to the world goes on in the heart before the Christian commits open sin. Doesn't happen overnight. You've got to get familiarized with sin. You've got to get accustomed to it so that things that used to think were real bad aren't seeming so bad anymore. Have you ever had that experience? Don't raise your hand. You know, in fact, I have to be careful here. I know Christians today who say, oh, I remember came into the church and I used to be real strict about everything, but today I realize it's not that much of a problem as I used to think it was. Well, is it not as much of a problem or have you just become hardened to the reality of sin? It's always dangerous to think, that, oh, you know, I just think that things are... That I used to think God was so strict. And maybe I should use, use a different word with strict, but uh, the devil uses this long preparatory process. Notice this statement here. The surroundings, speaking of the Israelites there in Baal Peor, that beautiful acacia grove, the palm trees, and, and of course they're going into the promised land, and the battles, many of the battles are behind them. These surroundings exerted a polluting influence upon the Israelites. Does the world we live in today have the potential of a, exerting a polluting influence? Their minds became what? Familiar with the vile thoughts constantly suggested. Now, I remember even in my early 20s, when I would see an animal dead on the road, it would bring me to tears. I don't even blink an eye anymore. I can see a mangled up deer on the road and I don't bat an eye at it. Is that because it's not horrible? Do you understand that Ellen White tells us in the book, Patriarchs and Prophets, I believe, that when Adam and Eve saw the first leaf fall or the first petal of a flower, 
They wept with as much heartbrokenness as we do over losing a loved one. You just become hardened to sin in a sinful world. The mind becomes familiar with the vile thoughts constantly suggested. Their life of ease and inaction produced its demoralizing effect and almost unconsciously to themselves, they were departing from God and coming into a condition where they would fall an easy prey to temptation. You know why these things are written? Because we still do it. And it may be that there's somebody here today who unconscious to yourselves have come a long way from where you used to be in your faithfulness to God. You say, no, I haven't. And that's making the point, potentially. This is why this is here for us on on record. By beholding, we become changed. By the indulgence of impure thoughts, man can so, what? Educate his mind. Notice the indulgence of impure thoughts. Now, we live in a sinful world. I'm going to be the first one to tell you, thoughts come into my head that I shouldn't have. But I have a choice. Am I going to dwell on it? Or am I going to ask the Lord, Lord, help me to think on something else and do the old... Has anybody ever heard of the marshmallow test before? The marshmallow test, where they had these... Oh, I I don't have the details right in front of me, but they did this test with children. It's been repeated uh, numerous times with different things, but it started with marshmallows. And they would take a a child, they put them in a room, and they'd come and they'd put a plate down with a marshmallow on it. And they said, listen, I'm going to give you this marshmallow, and you can have the marshmallow. It's yours. It's yours to eat. I'm going to go out of the room for a little bit. Now, if you wait, when I come back and you haven't eaten it, I'll give you another marshmallow. And it's really a fascinating study. Now, it, it, some of the kids, of course, just caved in seconds. You know, they had to have the marshmallow. And they were allowed to have the marshmallow. But the other kids thought, man, I get two marshmallows if I wait. And so it's interesting that as they studied, they studied beyond this. And the kids who waited... When they came into their adulthood, they were much better able to handle all the challenges of life because they had learned a little lesson of temperance. Or they had, you know, and it wasn't just in that test they learned it, but... Now, here's the thing about the marshmallow test. It's interesting. And you can YouTube it. Check it out. Google it on YouTube and say, uh, uh, you'll see these videos on the marshmallow test where people have reenacted them. And you'll watch the kids who wait... And you know how the kids who waited succeeded? Distraction. Oh, they'd go under the table so they didn't have to look at the marshmallow. They'd be looking over here, away from it. They wouldn't look at the marshmallow. They'd act like it wasn't there. They'd sing songs. They'd do all kinds of stuff to keep themselves occupied. You know, sometimes when the devil suggests an impure thought, it's not sin that you had an impure thought. It's indulging it. That's the problem. And you ask for the grace of the Lord and then use distraction. I had a friend of mine who said, sing We Three Kings. That'll, that'll banish. He used to have a problem with, you know, old songs coming into his head. He said, sing We Three Kings. It'll banish everything out of your mind, but We Three Kings. Well, it didn't work for me, but it worked for him. He can so educate his mind that sin which he once loathed will become what? Pleasant to him. Notice it's educate. Educating the mind doesn't happen once or twice. It's something that happens gradually. And so the enemy works it gradually. He'd startle us if he came right away and hit us with a big, hard temptation. So he gives us a little subtle thing here and there and begins to pave the way. Another one along those same lines from God's Amazing Grace, page 297, says, unless the mind is what? Educated to dwell upon religious themes, it will be weak and feeble, notice, 
in this direction. But while dwelling upon worldly enterprises, it will be strong. For in this direction, it has been cultivated and strengthened with exercise. Some people come into church, they're just like, oh, I just can't get, I don't know, every time I get into church, I feel so tired. I just can't get anything out of it. But you put them in front of anything else, put them in front of the ball game, whoa, everything is on. This is what it's talking about. You can educate your mind in one direction and not another direction. The reason it is so difficult, the statement's continuing, the reason it is so difficult for men and women to live religious lives is because they do not exercise the mind to godliness. It is trained to run in an opposite direction. Listen, friends, I'm going to tell you this is even a potential for pastors. You know how much of a pastor's job is administrative? You spend time with administrative stuff, that's not spiritual. You're going through it, and we all have it. We have our humdrum things in life that we have to deal with. But there needs to be time that's spent where the mind is dwelling on spiritual things to train it to godliness. So the devil works through this preparatory process. And he tries to train the mind. And what's fascinating is he uses the same methods he's been using for the last 3,500 plus years. Satan what? Well knows the what? The material with which he has to deal in the human heart. He knows for he has studied with fiendish intensity for thousands of years. He knows how we work. I mean, look, if a psychologist can do some study and know how the mind works, what do you think the devil knows about the mind with increased intelligence and having since his, he, he started out smarter. And he's had thousands of years to study. It says he, he let me go back here. He knows for he has studied with fiendish intensity for thousands of years the points most easily assailed in every character. I remember a friend of mine who struggled with appetite. And I'll never forget the time he called me and he said, you know, he said, I, was, I thought I was doing well. He went down to Yuchi Pines. You ever hear of Yuchi Pines? He went through one of their health programs. He was going to get, you know, straightened out on his diet. He says, I was sitting in my room and then he says, oh, the only thing, the one thing came into my mind, Jesus. Jesus. I'm like, no, no, no. He tries to banish the thought. He says, before, before 20 minutes were over, I was down at the store picking up a box of cheeses. It's funny to me. But the fact is, the devil knows, big or small, where that little trigger is for you, where that little trigger is for me. He studied it for thousands of years. Notice as we approach the close of time, as the people of God stand upon the borders of the heavenly Canaan, Satan will, as of old, redouble his efforts to prevent them from entering the goodly land. As I said, if he wanted to keep them out of the earthly Canaan, how much more the heavenly Canaan? And so he works. How does he work? Notice, he lays his snares for every soul by, notice the items here, by worldly friendships, the charms of beauty, pleasure-seeking, mirth, feasting, or the wine cup. And the statement goes on to say he tempts through all of these, he tempts men to violation of the seventh commandment. That one having to do with adultery, that, that sexual immorality. Incidentally, adultery doesn't just have to do with adultery, it has to also do with sexual immorality. That commandment, the principles of that apply. He uses all of these things, but he doesn't just trip us up on the sexual immorality front. And he's still using these methods. And brothers and sisters, we've got to be clear. The Apostle Paul says in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived. Uh, evil communications corrupt good habits. Or as it says in the NIV, bad company corrupts good character. 
Do not be deceived. He starts out saying that because the tendency of us is to say, oh, I know that works for everybody else, but not me. I mean, I'm going to be okay. Hey, you shouldn't be hanging out in that place. Hey, no, I know, I know. Look, I know, I'm a Christian. I know what's right and wrong. Have you ever heard that before? You tell somebody, look, I don't think that's a good place for you to go. I don't think you should be hanging. Hey, look, I know right and wrong. Like, like that's going to make the difference. And that's why the apostle says, hey, do not, do not be deceived. Or as we read a little earlier, those of you who think you stand, take heed lest you fall. You don't have strength to stand. And you go to some of these places, you put yourself in a compromising position. He still uses these methods, and I want to touch on them briefly. How many of you ever read the passage where the Bible says that we are not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever? That, that's the whole point that the apostle makes when he says not to be. Incidentally, that's uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. An unbeliever doesn't have the same values or principles that you have. And let me tell you something else. An unbeliever can't at all even understand where you're coming from. When I became a Christian, I mean, my friends thought I had lost my mind. They couldn't at all. I mean, look, here you, here you go from a guy who's always swearing, talking crude about women and other things and going out drinking and stuff, and now I'm not doing any of that. Uh, they're just, they just, can't, they can't figure out, number one, they can't figure out why you would stop doing that, and number two, they can't figure out what in the world you do for fun anymore. The book Patriarchs and Prophets speaks of Abraham, and it says when Abraham left the land of Ur, he could not explain his course so as to be understood by his friends. Because spiritual things are spiritually understood. And some of you have been that, maybe in your families or among your friends, you've been in that place where you're trying to explain to them, and they're like, what? Whatever. And it's just another added challenge. But the devil uses that. He's used worldly friendships from as far back as you can read to weaken the experience of God's people. It was by associating with what? Idolaters and joining their festivities that the Hebrews were led to transgress God's law and bring his judgments upon the nation. So now it is by leading the followers of Christ to do what? Associate with the ungodly and unite in their amusements as Satan is most what? Successful in luring them to sin. It's the same thing. He's using the same method. This um, next statement I want you to notice from Great Controversy says, Many are the ways by which Satan works through human influence to bind his captives. He secures multitudes to himself by attaching them by the what? Silken cords of affection to those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. Whatever this attachment be, may be, parental Filial, that is brother, sister. Conjugal, that's husband and wife. Or social, that's your friends. Whatever it may be, the effect is what? The same. The opposers of truth exert their power to control the conscience and the souls held under their sway have not sufficient courage or independence to obey their own convictions of duty. You make friends with people. And the devil will use, if they're ungodly people, the devil will use that to pull you away from the truth. And this concerns me. Listen, folks, a person doesn't have to be outside the church to be ungodly. When I started my pastoral ministry in Ohio, the academy Bible teacher went off the rails and took 
almost the whole senior class, most of the junior class, and a lot of the parents right out of the Seventh-day Adventist church with him because he was likable, because he made friends and connected with the students. Listen, folks, just because somebody connects with somebody doesn't mean they're a good influence. You hear what I'm saying? What are you connecting on? If I wanted to, I could connect real well with any young person. I just talk about the movies they like and the songs they like, and we're just... But I don't think that's appropriate for me as a pastor. I don't think that'd be using my influence in the right direction. Since the devil is successful in leading people away through these silken cords of affection. Because we think if the person's my friend or my father or my mother or my, my wife or whatever, he uses those bonds to draw people away. Still does it today and he's very successful in doing it. So the Lord asks for his people to come out and be separate for our own safety and for the sake of the gospel. And somebody should have said amen to that. The other thing that it mentioned there, we talked about worldly attachments, was the charms of beauty. In the book, Patriarchs and Prophets, it says those who would have conquered their enemies in battle were overcome by the wiles of heathen women. These are women who did not have an honor for God, and they used their bodies to seduce these men of Israel. You think the devil still uses this method to undermine the faith of God's people? Yes or no? Folks, Satan has used licentiousness to seduce multitudes from integrity to God. You go back to the sons of Seth, or, or the uh, Seth and his descendants. You go back to Samson, you go back to David, you go back to, to uh, Herod, right? Who asked for the head of John the Baptist, why? The Bible says he thought John was a prophet. But when his wife said, hey, I want the head of John the Baptist, he couldn't say no to her. And Salome came and did that dance for him, and the wine had him all confused, and next thing you know, he had murdered the prophet of God. Sexual perversion is a marked sign in the Bible of the last days. The Bible talks about the days of Lot as it was in the days of Lot, right? When the Bible talks about marrying and giving in marriage, it's not talking about the, mar- the marriage is holy. It's talking about perverted relationships. I just got online and got some quick stats on pornography in our world today. And I probably shouldn't. I didn't clear this. So I hope it's okay. But I've talked with Mr. Gardner before that even when we have a group of Adventists here, he can see what sites are visited during a camp meeting or something, and we got to... Now, let's just say it this way. More hits on pornography than you would care to think. It's an issue today. The devil uses it today like he always has. Don't think he doesn't. Even with some of you here today, this may be something you battle with. Notice these sad statistics. Every second, 28,258 users are watching pornography on the Internet. Every second. Every second, $3,000 plus is spent on pornography on the Internet 40 million American people regularly visit porn sites. 
Now, you think it's just a problem for the adults? Among the teens, 93% of boys and 62% of girls are exposed to internet porn before the age of 18. 70% of boys and 23% of girls have spent more than 30 minutes, that's 30 consecutive minutes. In other words, they were sitting watching for 30 minutes, looking at online porn on at least one occasion. 83% of boys and 57% of girls have seen group sex on the internet. 69% of boys and 57% of girls have seen porn showing same-sex intercourse. Look, I know how it was in my day, and I'm a long time removed from teen years, I had to say it. And yet I found my way to find the stuff. It's much more accessible today, and the devil uses it to his glory. The effect on families. Notice, according to the National Coalition for the Protection of Children and Families, 2010. So we're eight years away from that. 47%, 7 plus, of families in the United States reported that pornography is a problem in their home. 47%. And that doesn't, that's not all. Those are all the non-Christian homes. Don't even imagine that. Pornography use increases the marital infidelity rate by more than 300%. And the list could go on. I'm, not, I'm, I'm giving you just a little smattering of these kinds of... And this is just dealing with pornography and not the, even the follow-through. Sexual perversion is... You can't get around Baal Peor and not read sexual perversion there. And I think this... the the the, the extremity of the judgment that God brought was not just due to the fact that they were drawn away, but that particular uh, category of sin was very offensive to him. Patriarchs, and why? Notice this. Patriarchs and Prophets 458, sensual indulgence. It's talking about those kind of... that Sensual indulgence weakens the mind and debases the soul. The moral and intellectual powers are benumbed and what? paralyzed and it is what impossible for the slave of passion to realize the sacred obligation of the law of god to appreciate the atonement or to place right value upon the soul impossible goodness purity and truth reverence for god and love for sacred things all those holy affections and noble desires that link men with the heavenly world are consumed in the fires of lust and so the devil still uses these things today. And the last thing that was mentioned there in that list, I'm going to lump them together, is pleasure-seeking, mirth, feasting, and the wine cup. Oftentimes they go together. Mirth is an old word for, for uh, hilarity. Uh, get-togethers that are characterized by loud, raucous laughter. And what, what does our society do today? I mean, you got, you got the TV and the movies and nightclubs and amusement parks and anything else to thrill. In fact, how many of you have heard of escape rooms? Escape rooms, where people are paying money now to, to just for a thrill, they'll lock you in a room for an hour with family or friends, whoever you want to go with. Boy, lock with family for an hour. That's punishment, isn't it? You're going to go in. I'm not talking about your little, you know, anyway. For an hour... People are paying money for this, and then you've got to find a way to break out. I mean, I'm not trying to say that these things are inherently evil, but there's something about the society that is constantly needing some new rush. 
The great Russian author Maxim Gorky came to the United States and his hosts in the United States took him out for a big day at Coney Island. They took him on all the rides and he went around and had, I don't know if they had the elephant ears and what have you there and all the, just all that kind of circus type entertainment. Think they were showing this Russian a good time in America. And at the end of the day, they said, so what do you think? And he paused for a moment And then he responded, what a sad people you must be. What a sad people you must be if this is what you have to have all the time. This is an eye-opener right here. Notice this, Fundamentals of Education 455, when young men and young women are in deed and in truth converted, a decided change will be seen by all who may have, uh, sorry, who have any connection with them, their frivolity will leave them, the continual desire for amusement and selfish pleasure, the longing for some kind of change to be in parties and excursions, what? Will no longer be seen. Why? Because you've got something else that attracts you. It's Jesus and the truth. And sharing that truth with others who know him not. The devil still uses the the pleasure-seeking, and I would be remiss if I went through this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about TV and movies, but I'm going to spend a little bit of time, and I'm going to give a little plug because I believe it's in two weeks that we're going to have... uh, I'm thinking of the, the Little Light Studios here, and they're going to share some powerful... Um, insights on media and its effects. But listen, we are in a media-saturated generation, and I mean, the, 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 you, 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 I talk about TV. TV's almost gone by the wayside. I mean, it's streaming, streaming media. And movies, and... George Barna said, media exposure has become America's most widespread and serious addiction. That was in 2010. This is a portion of a very well-known statement, Ellen White Penn. It's in the book Adventist, homepage 516. Speaking of, uh, well, you'll notice right here, there is no influence in our land more powerful to poison the imagination, to destroy what? Religious impressions and to blunt the relish, that is the desire, for the tranquil pleasures and sober realities of life than theatrical amusements. That's, take that and break it down. You don't need anything else. Just poison the imagination. That's going to refer to the content. But the media of today is not just designed to affect you by the content. What it does is it makes us bored with anything else. All those flashing lights that make that video picture make us bored. And I want to say I praise God for people who have been trying to turn that to a good channel. We have a lot of Adventist, Adventist Review TV. We have the Lineage series. Uh, we have other Adventists who are putting out, trying to put out good media. But you can even have too much good media. I'll never forget watching 3ABN. Some caller, Danny Shelton's talking, and a person's like, yeah, I watch you guys all the time. I watch you guys. No, 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 no. That's not what they said. They, they were complaining because there wasn't enough new programming. 3ABM runs 24 hours a day, but they only had 10 hours a day of new programming. And so when the person wrote in and said, you don't have enough, to bro- new, enough new programming, Danny Shelton said, you're watching too much TV. I mean, there's even too much of a good thing. 
There are some people maybe today you're viewing at home who could be here. Now, I praise God that we have the opportunity for those who can't be here to view online. But there are some who miss fellowshipping with God's people because I'm going to sit at home because it's easier. And you miss that blessing. Even good media can be turned to a bad purpose. My brother Jim, he was just over in Rwanda on a Thursday, mind you. It wasn't a Saturday. He was there and he was talking to them about uh, Sabbath school and the importance of Sabbath school and some other things. 9.30 in the morning, the place was packed. And many of the people had to, get, had to get up five hours early to walk or ride their bikes to get there at 9.30 in the morning. And we're like, ah, oh, it's going to take me 10 minutes to get ready to drive over to the, you know, I'm just, I'm not wanting to be critical here, but I'm just saying this is exactly what Baal Peor is telling us is the devil has been slowly but surely invading our thought processes to where we find it almost difficult to follow Christ. And we're like Israel, camped on those shores of ease. Going on to talk about the theatrical amusements, it says the love for these scenes increases with every indulgence as the desire for intoxicating drink strengthens with its use. It means it's addictive. That's what it's saying. It's like the alcoholic. It's like alcohol to the alcoholic. The only safe course is to shun the theater, the circus, and every other questionable place of amusement thought this was an interesting quote from David Frost. He said, television is an invention that permits you to be entertained in your living room by people you wouldn't have in your house. <laughs> Isn't it true? I mean, the people on the screen is like, yeah, stay there. But they're in your home. See, this is the amazing thing about media today. It used to be that it was just literature. A person would have to go out to a concert, have to go out to the theater to see something. But today we have them right in our homes. And I'm not going to be the judge of everything. You've got to monitor those things by your own Christian principles, but you also have to be well aware of the dangers of them. Because ancient Israel fell in the wilderness. Not one of those who came out, save Caleb and Joshua, went into the promised land. And the Apostle Paul is urging us, don't follow the same example. Learn from their mistakes. Guard the avenues of the soul. Now, way back when the Great Wall of China was built, the people were wanting security from the barbarian hordes that would come in and attack. So they built the wall. In the first hundred years of the wall's existence, China was invaded three times. Not once did they break through the wall. You know how they got in? They bribed the gatekeeper every time. True story. Bribed the gatekeeper. Folks, the devil has been bribing the gatekeeper for way too long with every one of us, myself included. We are on the borders of the heavenly Canaan, and the Lord would have us go in. The Lord wants to give us victory. We have to have his grace to do it. Notice what it says here. He who attempts to build up a noble, virtuous character independent of the grace of Christ is building his house upon what? Shifting sand. We can't do it by ourselves. Yet we have a work to do to what? Resist temptation, right? Those who would not fall a prey to Satan's devices must guard well the avenues of the soul. 
They must avoid reading, seeing, or hearing that which will suggest impure thoughts. The mind must not be left to wander at random upon every subject that the adversary of souls may suggest. Talked about that earlier. Things pop in your mind. Sometimes you need to just send them right on their way. Girding up the loins of your mind, says the Apostle Peter. Be sober. That just meant to control the thoughts. And make sure to choose to dwell on good things. Brothers and sisters, worldliness is breaking our hold on God, which is exactly what it was designed and intended to do. Are we just going to sit back and let it happen? The Lord has higher claims on us. I was moved by a story I just heard of a couple young men just out of their teens. They wanted to go and serve Christ in a foreign field. They learned of a place that was an island of slaves. Nobody was there but the masters and the slaves. They couldn't go and witness to them and share the gospel with them unless they too were slaves because slaves were the only ones allowed on that island. So they sold themselves to the slave owner for life. It wasn't a year of missionary service. It wasn't a few months. They sold themselves for life because it was the only way they could witness to those slaves for Christ. And as their families were watching them, as they were departing, and their mother and father, brothers and sisters were on the shore, and they were in tears. Why do you have to go? Don't go, don't go, they said. Must not the lamb have the full reward of his sacrifice? Must not the lamb have the full reward of his sacrifice? Is it too much to let go of the world for Christ? Think about the things, these things the devil uses to distract us and what they're distracting us from. Think of the souls who don't even know who Jesus is. Because we're too busy vegging out in front of the tube. Oh, brothers and sisters, the Lord wants more for us. He wants so much more. I want to finish up by looking at a couple passages. One in Psalm 94. You know, the Lord identifies the challenges among us, but the Lord always tells us about his mighty power to save. And I love both of these passages You'll find refreshing Psalm 94, verse 14. Notice what it says. Psalm 94, 14. The Bible says, For the Lord will not, what? Cast off his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. But judgment will return to to righteousness, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Listen, I don't know where you are today. I may have mentioned something today that you're struggling with, but the Lord has not forsaken you. The Lord brings these things to our attention because he wants to be closer to us, and he knows these things coming between us and him. And today he would have you to know and have me to know he's not casting us off. We're his people. He's drawing us to himself. And in Deuteronomy 30, we'll finish there. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, I was reading through this this week with my family. Just a powerful promise. Deuteronomy 30, starting in the first verse. Deuteronomy 
Deuteronomy 30 verse 1 says, Now it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you. It's just mentioned the blessings and the cursings, the blessings for obedience, the cursings for disobedience. When all these things come upon you, the blessings and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you. In other words, because of your own poor choices, you land, end up somewhere where you never wanted to be. But when you're there and you think of the promises of God, this is what he's saying. Verse 2, and you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. My friend, today it doesn't matter what you're struggling with, where you find yourself, where you may be finding yourself right now, the Lord is calling you back. And if you bring to mind the promises of God and say, Lord, I want to serve you, but I'm weak. Give me your strength. Then you have it. Today you have it. Today he accepts you back. Today he receives you. And he promises to bring you from that captivity. So we don't need to be conquered by these habits that the devil introduces to draw us away from Christ, but we can walk with him step by step and day by day, and the lamb can indeed have the full measure of his sacrifice. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Father, as we meditate upon this story today, upon these counsels you've given upon the snares the devil has put in our lives, upon some of the things maybe we have been battling with for some time. Lord, help us not to faint or lose heart. Help us to realize that where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. And that the same God who has brought victory through the ages, can bring victory to us today. Your arm is not shortened that it cannot save. Lord, today I pray for each one of us as we've reflected upon these things, that we would see it not as something that you're revealing to us to keep us apart from you, but something that within we hear your voice calling us to yourself, to a deeper experience and a closer walk. And Lord, there are some here today who have very real struggles. Lord, you know those struggles. Lord Jesus, there's not a thing that we experience that you have not experienced yourself. And yet you've promised us that we can overcome as you overcame. That even now at this moment... If we yield up our hearts to you, say, Lord, I can't do it. But I pray that you will change my heart and transform me by your grace that at this moment we can stand in the righteousness of Christ and you will be our defense. Father, we thank you for the precious promises of your word and I pray it's not in us to give, Lord, but I pray that by your grace, 
you will influence our choices in such a way that the lamb will surely have the full measure, the full reward of his sacrifice. For we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.